from chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. So that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. And if you want to find that in the Pew Bibles, it's 1,179. 1179. Let's pray before we read. Father God, we thank you for this uh, series we're in in this beautiful letter that you inspired by your spirit, the Apostle Paul, to write to Christians in Philippi. And Father, we want to be inspired by your spirit. We want to understand what it was you were trying to say through Paul to that church. We want to understand how he was directing them to Jesus. And Father, we want to understand more about Jesus. So as your spirit helps each one of us, please help me to help us to understand deep within our beings in a way that transforms us, not just gives us a bit more information about the Bible, but in a way that transforms us and renews our mind. Father, help me to help us and help us to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So from verse 1, I'll read right down to verse 18. And remember, it's page 1179. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, But in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your mindset, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm so glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. We've been in this series now for, uh, this is the third week, Joy-Filled Living. And we looked in week one at joyful faith sharing and week two at joyful suffering. And I, I just felt the Spirit of God fall upon us at this service last week. It was quite 
remarkable the way the Holy Spirit touched our lives and we give glory to God. And today I'm looking at joyful serving. And one of the things that I want to say right at the outset is there's a link between humility and service and a link between service and humility. And Billy Graham, who's recently got his home call, as some people would put it, he's gone to be with Jesus. He's died. He's left this life. A man who preached to more human beings than anyone else who's ever lived. He preached about Jesus to millions of human beings. And he was a man of great humility, and he served God so incredibly faithfully, well into that latter part of his life, so speaking God's word. That was his area of service. But he started out as a very, uh, a very energetic, brash, excited, uh, full of zeal evangelist um, as a young Baptist minister. And he was in a very small town in the early days of his ministry in a small backwards part of America. And he went up to a small boy because he'd got there uh, on the day of his ministry and he'd got into his hotel where he was going to be staying and he decided to write some letters and he wanted to post them so he's looking for the post office. And he went up to this young boy, this small boy and said, uh, can you please give me directions to the post office? And the young boy said, yep. Yeah. And he gave him the directions and that was great. And Billy Graham thanked him profusely and said, thank you so much for helping me with those directions. And I tell you what, if you come to the Baptist church up the road tonight, I'll tell you how to get to heaven. And the little boy said, oh, I don't think I'll be there, sir. He said, why not? He said, well, you couldn't even find the way to the post office. (laughs) God has his ways of keeping us humble. And I'm sure that that's a story that uh, Billy Graham himself enjoyed telling. There's another American who's died just this last week, Barbara Bush, a former uh, first lady, as the Americans call the wife of a president until the first female president, and I guess it'll be the first man. I don't know, but Barbara Bush um, was a woman whose life was clearly also marked by humility and service. And uh, she was a wife of one president, and uh, she was a mother of another president, and Barack Obama and his wife Michelle wrote this about her when she died on Tuesday. They said this, that Barbara Bush was an example of humility, it's the first word they used, and decency that reflects the very best of the American spirit. And the Canadian president, President Trudeau, said this about Barbara Bush, that she leaves a legacy of dignity, grace, service, and devotion to family. So there you have it, humility and service mark that woman's life, her long life. And in our vision and strategy cards, which are still available if you haven't got one, you'll know that we have five core values. And my brother and friend Owen tried to represent an analogy I've used, that if we're like a stick of Scarborough rock, Uh, As individuals, instead of the word Scarborough going all the way through that rock wherever you break it, these core values of worship, of humility, of compassion and of service should mark the life of someone who's part of this church. If you want to be those who, according to our vision statement, are following Jesus in all of life and growing in love for God and others, then we need to know about humility and service, service and humility and those other core values. So that's what I'm on to today, because as I come to this third week, it's about this joyful serving. And we get this supreme example from Jesus. Because if you look at your Bibles, at least in my edition, it's indented from verses 6 down to verse 11. And almost any scholar that's worth their salt, any pastor teacher that's investigated this, would tell you that that's almost certainly Paul quoting 
from a New Testament hymn or song that was used in the church regularly. It'd be like me quoting from Graham Kendrick's now quite old, beautiful hymn called The Servant King, which has a chorus, a final verse that says, So let us learn how to serve in our lives to enthrone him. The Servant King captures something of this type of song that was sung in the very earliest church. Okay? It's called the Christ hymn. The Christ hymn. So it's possibly a poem, but it's almost certainly used and set to music as a hymn. And it captures the fact that uh, what Paul's talking about in Philippians is this supreme example of Jesus. But let's step back a bit. If you've got your pew Bibles and you open them to the back cover, there's a map in the back cover. And if you look to the top center of the map inside the back hard cover of your pew Bible, you'll see the city of Philippi right at the top. Just turn your Bible on its side, look at there. This city of Philippi is top center of that map. It was in, on a key trade route. It was an incredibly wealthy city. It was a Roman colony. There were many wealthy Roman citizens that lived there. Merchants or retired centurions or Roman officers and other wealthy Romans had homes there. They would have many slaves. And in the Roman culture, what we need to know about is true in the Greek culture, and it's still true in much of our world today, there's this culture called the honor-shame culture. Let me try and give you a potted sociological explanation of it. It's a culture whereby the people in it want to get as much honour as they can. So the ideal would be you might become one of those centurions or a wealthy merchant with lots of slaves. You might even become a senator in Rome itself. And if you were called upon, you might even become Caesar. Though by this time, the Caesars were almost regarded as deities, as gods. Okay, And you were forced to say in the empire, at will, you are forced to say, you are ordered to say, Caesar is Lord. Now these Christians weren't going to do that because they knew that Jesus is Lord. But they lived in this proud Roman colony of Philippi that was full of wealth, that was riddled with this honor-shame culture where you do everything you can to get honor and everything you can to avoid shame. So the worst thing you would be is a slave. A humble slave. That's what you didn't want to be. You wanted to be a powerful senator or a merchant or a general or something like that. And in Philippi, named after uh, the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon, Philip II of Macedon, they were used to this honor-shame culture. So to, to use a hymn like this in worship would have been completely, utterly countercultural. It would go against everything that was in their culture. Why? Well, let's look at the way it it speaks. Christ, by the way, is not the surname of Jesus. It means, in the Greek, Christos. It means, in the Hebrew, Messiah. In the English, anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And we see that Christ is in very nature God. In verse 6, we see that Christ is in very nature God. Let, Let me read that for you. It says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used for his own advantage. So in his very nature, Jesus, Jesus Christ is God, but he didn't kind of hold on to that. He said he only did what he saw the Father doing. He just wanted to do the Father's will. But we know that he's in very nature God because John, who stood at the cross close enough to see Jesus give his dying breath, John, who saw him, one of the first disciples to see him after the resurrection, John, as an old man, writes in his gospel this, 
in chapter 1, from verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now for Jews, the Word is the Word of creation that God speaks. And the powerful Word of God, the Word of the Jewish Scriptures. For the Greeks, the Word was the rhyme and reason of the, of the universe, the logos, the thing that holds the universe together. And John writes to Jews and Greeks, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But he writes, and the Word was God. This Word who was with God was God. He was with God right in the beginning. There's never a time he didn't exist. And through him, this Word who was with God and was God, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it, nor has it overcome it. And in verse 14 of John 1, John writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word who was with God and was God became flesh. He became human and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. So this isn't the Father. He came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word who was with God and the Word who was God became flesh. This is Jesus who's in very nature God. Now I'm delighted to tell you that when that baptismal service comes up, those five to seven people who will be baptised are of Islamic background. There's no way they would get baptised unless they'd come to understand that God can be known in Jesus Christ, who's not just human but also God. Unless they'd come to understand that they'll be baptised in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. So Christ, according to this early hymn that the church used in worship, is in very nature God. And yet Christ took the nature of a servant, verse 7. The one who's God took the nature of a servant. If you look back in Philippians chapter 2 and at verse 7, it makes it clear. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Now that doesn't mean he just seemed to be human, that's, that's a heresy. He didn't didn't just seem to be human. He was fully human. He was flesh and blood. So that's what we call the miracle of the incarnation. But an amazing miracle is the one who created the universe takes the nature of a servant. It's like he he emptied himself. And that, that hymn by Graham Kendrick, The Servant King, captures it. Here's another one, quite an old chorus now. I think it's written by Nolan Tricia Richards. You laid aside your majesty. You gave up everything for me. You suffered at the hands of those you had created. So that the hands that were going to be pierced with nails are the hands that created and shaped you and the universe. You suffered at the hands of those you created with your hands. You laid aside your majesty. You, You emptied yourself. You took the very nature of a servant. Christ humbled himself, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, not just appearing to be a man, but fully human, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that's a difficult verse. Who was Jesus being obedient to? Because if he was being obedient to the Father, and he was, then is he less than the Father? That's what some heretical groups would say. No, not at all. It's like he surrendered his divine rights it's like he, he, he cloaked his glory so we couldn't see his glory. And when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, they couldn't handle it. They were dazzled. They fell to their faces. If Jesus appeared in his glory here today, we would all be on our faces. 
on his humanity. It's like he, he clothed his glory, he surrendered his divine rights. There's one scholar called Lomea, and Lomea said this, only a divine being can accept death as obedience. Now, I don't want to be gloomy and dark, but here's some statistics for you. 100% of human beings die. All right? I'm closer to it than Dave, who's been playing guitar for us this morning. But one day, it'll happen to both of us. The good news is, for both of us, whether it's me sooner rather than later, and Dave later, is that if we're Christians, we will be immediately in the presence of God. Isn't that wonderful? But none of us will die because we're obedient. We might, as a martyr, say, no, I'm not going to say, however much you make me, that someone else is Lord, because Jesus is my Lord. And like these Philippians, and certainly for Roman Christians, that might be the end of it. But we don't lay down our life as a step of obedience. Lomaer says only a divine being can do that. Only God can choose to do that and to take up his life through resurrection. So he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I've got something, if you've never heard it before, absolutely eye-opening to share with you about the next point. It's this. Christ was exalted to the highest place. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's exalted to the highest place. Listen to what Jesus said to the supposedly religious top leaders of his day, the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he's using more invective than I've ever used as a pastor. I've challenged people, but I've never spoken to people. I don't believe the way Jesus spoke to these so-called religious leaders. Woe upon woe upon woe, he says to them. You're like a bunch of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. When was the last time I said that to you in a pastoral visit? You might be tempted to think, well, if that's the way you are, I'm going. And I'm sure that's exactly why they wanted to crucify him. But listen to what he said to them in the midst of that. Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. Wow. For whoever exalts himself, said Jesus, will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I have been on my face in tears before Jesus more times than I can remember. Why? Because I need to humble myself before Jesus, because I get it wrong. Anyone else ever get it wrong? Do you know the amazing thing that those tears turn from tears of regret and repentance into tears of joy because I feel his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy? Ever felt that? It's amazing. Those Pharisees were just told the greatest would be a servant and those who exalt themselves, they're going to be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus himself was exalted to the highest place by his Father in heaven. Can I ask you a question? We're in a military city, mostly naval, but we're in a military city. We have marines and so on. Can anyone tell me what the highest award, the highest medal for gallantry is in the British military? What is it? People said VC. What's it stand for? VC. Victoria Cross. I don't think it's an accident that Queen Victoria, who first bestrode that medal of gallantry, chose the cross. She was, like our Queen Elizabeth, defender of the faith. The cross speaks of sacrifice. The cross speaks of death. The cross also is empty and it speaks of resurrection. But most of the people who win a Victoria Cross are awarded it posthumously. In other words, after they have died. They were so brave that it cost them their life. They laid down their life. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, and they lay down their life for their friends. But if you ask the ones that survived it, 
How come you were so brave? They said, I was just doing a job. My friend's life was at risk. I had to take on that machine gun nest, only carrying a rifle, because otherwise more of my friends and brothers were going to die. The Victoria Cross. Christ was exalted to the highest place. Verse 9, let me read it for us. Therefore, this one who humbled himself, God the Father exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Every name? Above every name? Then that would make him equal to God, wouldn't it? Yes. It would. And that's why the last part of this hymn, verses 10 to 11, captures something powerful. That in the name of Jesus and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the Greek, that's kurios. I'll explain that. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day that's going to happen. Those friends that ridicule you now, those friends that persecute you, those friends who say there's no God, it's all a nonsense. One day all of us will bow the knee before Jesus. And he knows who belongs to him. But this Greek word, kurios for Lord, this is the word that the, the 70 Jewish scholars who translated what we call the Old Testament, their scriptures, they translated it into Greek for the, the Greek world, including Philip of Macedon, who founded Philippi, okay, so that the Old Testament scriptures could be read in, in, in common Greek by everyone. Wherever the name that we have in our Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, for Yahweh, the great I Am, the common name for God, a Jew would not take that name upon on their, their lips because it's so sacred. So wherever that name appeared in the Old Testament, these 70 scholars in the Septuagint translated it, kurios. So for Paul as a Jew to say that Jesus Christ is kurios, are you with me? He's God. But just in case you're wondering, turn in your Bibles, go with me to Isaiah chapter 45. I'm going to read verses 22 to 23 of Isaiah 45. But while you're turning to Isaiah 45, 22 to 23, let me read again verse 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is what we find in Isaiah. Hundreds of years before Christ is born. The Isaiah who talks about a suffering servant who will be pierced for our transgressions. Will be sacrificed for our iniquities, for our sins. Will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Because we, like sheep, had gone astray. That same Isaiah says this. He speaks as if speaking the very word of God. And in, on behalf of God, Isaiah brings this word to the people. From verse 22. Turn to me and be saved. Isaiah is not talking about himself. He's talking about God. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. So not just Jews. Everyone in the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, because God had no one to swear by except himself. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Listen to this, folks. Therefore, before me every knee will bow and by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, I am the Lord alone. 
If you needed any concrete evidence that Jesus is indeed fully human, but fully God, there it is. There it is, so clear. And yet he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. St. Augustine, an early church father, said this, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds. Lay first a foundation of humility. Lay first a foundation of humility. So let's look at this sacrificial service then, this humility before God and others. We've said that humility and service are both Muttley Baptist Church core values. They're qualities of a servant-hearted disciple. And the first thing we find is that in Jesus, he carries out the supreme, the ultimate act of service for Father God and for you and for me and for others. He chose in Gethsemane to die. He says in Gethsemane he's anguished on what we call Monday Thursday, on the Thursday night of his arrest. He's anguished and he says, Father, if there's any way to take this cup of suffering that Isaiah spoke about from me, Please take it. Father, I'm I'm paraphrasing now. I can't stand the thought of being brutally murdered on that cross. Father, if there's another way other than the way we agreed from before the beginning of time, Father, find it. And then he says, in humble service, yet not my will, but your will be done. Wow. This is a supreme act of service that Jesus opened up his arms to receive those nails because he loves you. Look, you personally, you on the balcony, you down here, he loves you. He gave everything. And Paul speaks out of that, having spoken in this hymn in verse 8 about, about the God who humbled himself. Christ who humbled himself. Having spoken in verse 3 that these Philippians should do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than themselves, he's applying this hymn to their lives. He says, if you are united with Christ, if you're comforted and and feel his love, then be like Jesus. Have the same kind of attitude. Jesus serves us. We should be serving on overflow. Could you say that with me? Serving on overflow. Let's say it together. Serving on overflow. What does that mean? It means when I come here and I'm stirred in worship, as I have been today, as Grace and, and the team have led us, as my heart swells with love and gratitude to God and I fill up with his spirit and fill up with his love and fill up with gratitude, then I should overflow in service to God. Are you with me? Serving on overflow. Not through gritted teeth. Oh, I suppose the pastor's going to ask me to sign up to help with the tech. Yeah, actually the pastor is at the end of this message. But that's not what you're all called to do. But what we're all called to do is serve. And if we're united with Christ and comforted and loved, as it says in verse 1, then we should do that. Let's read the whole of verse 1. If you've got any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. He's talking about that being full of the spirit and tender compassion. Now, if I'd mentioned two years ago a couple of celebrities called Ant and Deck, many of you had thought, yeah, they're good guys, aren't they? Ant and Deck, they're nice. They're the darlings of the nation. 
But I saw a picture and read some words from Ant McPartlin, Anthony McPartlin, this week that was heartbreaking. Bear me out, because I know what he did was terribly, terribly wrong. These hosts of Britain have got talent. They're not able to work together at the moment because Ant's not working because he's been fined £85,000, the highest ever fine for a drink-driving offence. When he was drunk in his mini with his mother in the passenger seat, he smashed into three cars, he's been banned for 20 months and fined the most that's ever been given. By the way, he earns about £130,000 a week, so it's like small change to him. But that's not the point I want to make. He said he was truly sorry And sometimes people say that now just to kind of get off the hook. But I don't think that's what I saw in his face and eyes. He could have killed someone and he knows it. He said he's truly sorry. He's ashamed and mortified. This is what he said. High standards are expected of me. I expect them of myself. I've let myself down. I've let a lot of people down. And for that I'm truly sorry. I'd like to apologize to everybody involved in the crash. And I'm just thankful that no one was seriously hurt. He's very famous. He's a darling, or he was a darling of the nation, earning £130,000 a week. But he's not happy, is he? He's struggling with relationships, and he's struggling with addiction. And he needs our prayers. So do the people if they were traumatized by the crash. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. It's just that I've just read that God wants you and me to be tender-hearted and full of compassion. And when I read what some of the trolls were writing, you know what I mean by trolls? It's easy to sit at a computer and say the most hateful things, isn't it? And just press a button. God wants people to be tender-hearted and full of compassion and joyful and like-minded loving and one in spirit and purpose. That's what we've read in verse 2. We can have a unity with a diversity because people have got different gifts and and different passions and different personalities. I mean, just let me take yesterday morning. I came to the church early, just before half past eight. We had coffee. We met as a discipleship team. And we're going to do some small group training, so that was part of our discussion. And we decided we're going to do some role play. I know some people hate it, but playing like a small group leader and and a small group in role play to demonstrate to small group leaders something of it. And you know, sometimes small group leaders struggle with with someone that they just can't stop talking. They never stop talking. But they also struggle sometimes with people they can't get, get to speak. So for obvious reasons, I decided that I would play the role of the person who you can never get to speak. What are you laughing for? Because you get the irony. And one of the people in the group, a young mum, said... So what are you going to use then, Clive? Gaffer tape. That's great, isn't it? Because you know me well enough to know I'm loud and I'm extrovert. I don't like to talk. But we're not all the same. But if we're joyful, like-minded, loving, one in spirit and purpose, whether you're introvert, extrovert, whether you're a preacher or whether you're making the cups of coffee or operating the tech or whatever you're doing, with a unity and diversity, the church is something amazing at its best. As long as we're not selfishly ambitious, because verse 3 makes it quite clear that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. Can I just put a corrective in here? Absolutely. Paul's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We should never do anything out of selfish ambition, but what Paul's not saying is, don't be ambitious. Because we need more Billy Grahams, not less. 
We need more people that operate the tech, more people that make the tea, and more people that preach, not less. So we need kingdom ambitions, redeemed ambitions. We need to be ambitious for Jesus and ambitious for his kingdom, as long as we're not being selfish about trying to achieve some status. And we need to look to Jesus, not to our own interests, but look to Jesus and look like Jesus to the interests of others. Listen to verses 4 and 5. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then there's that beautiful hymn. We should embrace the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And we should embrace the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. I want to close by talking about the humility that is required and was required by Jesus and is required by us to serve God and each other. Right at the beginning I said service and humility, humility and service will go hand in hand. So when we're asking, well, what does God want from us, Clive? And that's a perfectly reasonable question to ask me as the preacher. God wants humility. God wants us to serve him and others with humility. And we'll come back to that. But are there any Muhammad Ali? I know he's passed on now. Any Muhammad Ali fans? Anyone who thought he was a great guy? I mean, what a great guy. Listen to something Muhammad Ali said. He said, when you're as great as I am, it's hard to be humble. you just got to love him, haven't you? I, I don't know if he was self I think he believed it. I'm the greatest. I'm the king of the world. That's what he did, didn't he? But what a role model. What a role model. Whatever you think about his beliefs, he stood up for them. And he said this, someone at the nine o'clock, Bob, who plays the trumpet, told me this. He said about his boxing, you know, he's, he's light on his feet and fast. He said, I'm so fast that I can get out of bed on the morning, turn on the light and be back in bed before the light actually comes on. <laughs> Whatever you think about Muhammad Ali, whether he's modest or not, Jesus washed dirt from between the toes of his disciples, including Judas who betrayed him. The one whose hands, within a day or so of washing the feet of his disciples, were pierced with nails. The one whose hands flung stars into space as Graham Kendrick captures it in The Servant King, that hymn that he wrote, that song that he wrote is the one who washed the feet of every disciple, taking the form of the most humble slave or servant, the creator of the universe, washed feet. What does God want for us? God wants to work out his purposes in and through us. He wants us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But he wants us not just to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. He wants us to be part of the answer. Listen to verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my dear friends, writes Paul to these friends, these Philippians, that he knew well, by the way, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Do you know God has one plan for the universe, plan A. He does not have a backup plan, plan B. And you and I, we are plan A. He has no plan B. We are plan A. And some of you are thinking, oh my word, are we in trouble. No, we're not. Because God lives in you if you're a Christian. And if God doesn't live in you because you're not a Christian, let me introduce you to Jesus after this service. He loves you and wants you to spend eternity with him. 
God works out his purposes in and through us. So we work out our salvation. I've got to be responsible for the fact that Clive's a better daddy, a better husband, a better pastor, a better brother and a better friend next year than I was last year. I've got to work that out with the love and the grace and the power and the help of God. But God wants us to serve him and others as his children. God wants us to shine like stars. Now, I'm going to get you to do one of those things that you hate doing. You know when I embarrass you and you get you to do something that embarrasses you? So just a fair warning, okay? But I'm not going to do it until I've read verses 14 to 15. So bear in mind that Paul is writing about Jesus, who is the light of the world, and that Jesus, and Paul knew this, had said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. You go and shine your light. Don't hide it under a bushel. And knowing that, Paul writes this in verses 14 to 15. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Pastors love that verse. Can I just read it again? Do everything without complaining or arguing. Okay? Uh, He goes on to say, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Listen to this. In which you shine like stars in the universe. Here's the embarrassing thing to do. Turn to the people either side of you or front and back and just look them in the eyes and say, you're a star. Okay, okay. See, you've gone and fallen into pride now, haven't you? So this is how to keep those people humble. Those people who just looked in the eyes and said, you're a star, this is what you've got to add. As long as you are shining like a star for Jesus with the light he gives you. As long as you're shining like a star for Jesus with the light he gives you. Go, say that. Okay. Need to draw to a close. You see, God wants us to let the light of life shine through us. He wants us to let the light of life shine through us, verses 16 to 17. As you hold out or hold on to the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service, notice the link between sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. I can't tell you what it feels like for me to walk around the church when stuff's going on. Like I left that amazing group of people for the discipleship action team in the lounge, and then I went upstairs to see Beth and those people working with the children um, in, uh, in their group, and then I went down to see Annie and her team working with families downstairs, and if I cast my mind back just to the previous Sunday, uh, Monday night, that amazing Thanksgiving service here could not have happened without techies, welcomers, Rob, uh, Rob Diamond working flat out, people in the office, the worship team from Hope, and all those people serving together, it was amazing. And when Catherine's friends from work who know her and love her and value her and feel sad for her, but they don't go to church for the most part and they're not Christians, when they came amongst the six to seven hundred people who were gathered here, they would have been powerfully touched by the presence of God. Because Andrew's life and the life of his son and daughter who testified and the courage of his wife and the rest of his family 
and the witness of his church and this church, a previous church he served, we shone like stars in the universe as we held out the light of life. You know what? There's a joy in serving. God wants us to be glad and joyful and rejoicing. And I finish with this. Paul, in verse 18, makes it clear. He says, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He's going to say a little bit further on, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. Be full of joy. Let your joy overflow in service. So you might want to say, how? I got piles of leaflets that the office and Rob produced for me. They're just simply called ways to serve. You serve Jesus on your front line, but if we stop serving in the church as well, it doesn't happen. We have a particular need for those who operate sound and vision and recording. But there's all different kinds of ways to serve there. And if we all serve a little bit, none of us get overworked. None of us have to do too much because we all share from our different personalities and passions. I'm going to ask the band, the the worship team, to come back now. But do you understand what what I mean? If they don't play their instruments and sing their songs, we don't get to worship God. And we need more musicians and more singers at the moment and more techies. But we don't just want to do something on a Sunday morning. There's street pastors and soup run, families ministry, youth and children's ministry. There's all these ministries and more mentioned in here. But each single one of you, some of you are called to the mission field. Thank God for you. But all of us are called to the mission field that we step into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Some of you are called to be foster carers. That's your mission from God. Stand with me, brothers and sisters. I want to pray that you will be ambitious for the kingdom. That God will so prosper your ministry. You'll identify with Muhammad Ali who said, this is so great, it's hard to be humble. But that our example will not be him, it will be Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for all those other men and women and young people who are behind this back wall serving downstairs in different rooms. Thank you for the people who cleaned this room. I thank you for the people who prepared the tea and the coffee. Lord, it's an amazing, amazing thing to be part of Motley Baptist Church. Not because we think we're great, but because a great amount of good is done and a great amount of love and care is shown. And not just in this nation, Lord, but we've sent people to other nations in the world who make a difference right where they are. And yet, Lord, the truth is, any single one of us, any man or woman here can serve you. So whether we take a booklet, which I hope we will or not, Father, Show us how to serve you with humility and in humble service to find a joy that overflows our lives. And we will be sure, Jesus, to give you all the glory. We ask these things now in your wonderful name. Amen. Let's worship.